Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 76, The Final Frontier, which discusses some of the chemical advances besides rocket fuels the space age brought us in the 1960s through 1970s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. A while back, I spent an episode discussing the various rocket fuels developed from the 1940s till the 1960s that brought people into space. This episode is devoted to other aspects of chemistry that evolved out of the space program, mostly, but not entirely, to keep people alive once they reached outer space. Bringing people and materiel to space requires a lot of energy and rocket fuel, so shrinking the mass of the stuff going into space is important to space agencies. One of the first innovations that the American NASA came up with was the Space Blanket. The Marshall Space Flight Center invented the Space Blanket in 1964. This type of blanket is sometimes made of a thin film of polyethylene terephthalate, the same polymer that came to be used a decade later for plastic water bottles. For outer space usage, though, the polymer film is often a polyimide such as Kapton. Kapton was chosen because it tolerates ultraviolet radiation from the sun, a problem in space with no ozone layer. It is stable from cryogenic temperatures to, at least briefly, oven temperatures, and there is little vaporization of solvents from manufacturing. Whatever the polymer, the plastic is then placed in a vacuum chamber, and aluminum atoms are deposited on top. The final product has a shiny metallic appearance and reflects 97% of heat while being ultra-light weight. Not only can it protect people, it can protect machinery and instruments in space. Such a foil protection covered the lunar module and was employed in 1973 to keep Skylab from heating up. Often you will also hear them called mylar blankets or foil blankets. A second innovation from NASA was the astronauts' breathing atmosphere. All animals and people breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide as a waste product. If the local concentration of carbon dioxide gets too high, people can become dizzy and nauseous, later fall unconscious, and eventually they can asphyxiate from lack of oxygen. Therefore, in a sealed can like a spacecraft, removal of the waste carbon dioxide from breathing is crucial. To remove carbon dioxide from air, NASA chose canisters of lithium hydroxide. The removal process from the air is first what's called chemisorption, that is, the carbon dioxide molecules stick to the lithium hydroxide and react. 
another bit of surface chemistry. The first step is the addition of a water molecule to lithium hydroxide, LiOH, to give lithium hydroxide monohydrate. This reaction releases some heat to the environment. The second step is two lithium hydroxide monohydrates plus one carbon dioxide molecule gives lithium carbonate plus three water molecules. The second step absorbs a bit of heat from the environment. The lithium hydroxide canister also contained activated charcoal to absorb odors from the air. You know, several astronauts not being able to properly bathe for a while. And after a mission, the canister is discarded. There is some research currently underway on how to regenerate a good lithium hydroxide canister for long missions. Another NASA invention was an anti-corrosion coating. Places like Cape Canaveral, next to the ocean, are subjected to ocean spray, which is a nasty brew of salt fog that can corrode metal structures like launch pads and gantries. By the way, this salt spray is also a problem for airports near the ocean, as well as aircraft carriers at sea. Even aluminum, a lightweight metal that is relatively inert. And the construction material of choice for aircraft is not immune, and we don't want wings dropping off of aircraft after being exposed to marine environments. At NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, a team headed by chemist John Shutt created a coating from zinc powder and potassium silicate to act as an anti-corrosion method. A patent titled. Potassium silicate zinc coatings was applied for in 1968 and granted to NASA in 1971. The coating is used at Cape Canaveral's structures and helps to protect against saltwater corrosion plus high-temperature exhaust from rockets that are launched. The product takes about half an hour to dry into a hard, durable finish, about 150 to 200 micrometers thick. Currently, it's used for pipelines, tanks, docks at shipping ports, antennas, and even the Statue of Liberty. Another interesting chemical product from NASA was invented in 1966. The idea was to give better safety for cushioning in aircraft. What I refer to here is memory foam. This product is a polyurethane foam invented in the previous decade, as I talked about in an earlier episode. NASA's project was outsourced to a contracting company called Stencell Aero Engineering, where Charles Yost and Ronald Oates worked on a prototype foam they called Temper Foam to gain protection for seats in airplanes from crashes and vibrations. After the initial report in 1969 called "Human Survival in Aircraft Emergencies," the product moved to the NASA Ames Research Center, where it also was called "Slow Springback Foam." The polyurethane foam has extra chemicals to raise its density and viscosity. 
Foams have bubbles, but these bubbles are open, allowing air to flow through. With body warmth, the material is designed to soften and mold to your body. When the heat is removed, the material hardens a bit and returns to its original shape. In the 1980s, NASA began offering the material to the public, and it became famous by 1991 when the Tempur-Pedic mattress went on sale. Here's yet another invention to come out of the technological issues NASA had with space exploration and living. NASA was working on water purification systems on a smaller scale to bring to Skylab and other long-term space missions. All water that astronauts need has to be brought along for use, and it must be recycled. One of the NASA scientists, Ted Wideven. Was working on such water purifiers and their membranes to catch some impurities. He put an electric arc across the membrane in an attempt to improve it with a vapor of organic compounds and created a thin polymer film. After doing some measurements, he found that the new film was highly resistant to scratches. Now, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Had just issued regulations for eyeglasses, spectacles for you Brits, in 1972 that required all lens prescriptions and sunglasses to be made as shatter-resistant. Glasses not, so glasses manufacturers went toward non-shattering polymer substitutes like polycarbonates. These polymers may be shatter-resistant, but they are generally not scratch-resistant. Wideven began investigating the properties of his new polymer films as lens coatings, and published his findings under such reports as "combination moisture resistant and anti-reflection plasma polymerized thin films for optical coatings" in the journal Applied Optics in 1974, and "anti-reflection coating prepared by plasma polymerization of perfluorobutene II." In the journal Applied Optics in 1976, even more obvious is the 1977 article in Applied Optics: Plasma Polymerized Coating for Polycarbonate, Single Layer Abrasion Resistant and Anti-Reflection. The abstract for this last article describes the films as vinyl trimethyl oxysilane, which is an organosilicon polymer. By 1983, NASA licensed the process out to Foster Grant Eyewear Company, and now anti-scratch coatings are a popular addition to polycarbonate lenses. Speaking of water purification, always a problem when you have a mighty limited supply of water on a small spacecraft. NASA patented an iodine generator for reclaimed water purification. That is, according to the patent granted in December 1977, a way to monitor and adjust the level of iodine to act as a germicide. An iodine sensor watches the level of iodine in the water 
and electronically controls the amount of iodine added as necessary. So, how does the system check the level of iodine? By means of spectroscopy, molecular iodine I two in water absorbs light toward the blue end of the visible spectrum, mostly at wavelengths shorter than 550 nanometers, from the yellow, green, green, blue, and purple, and way into the ultraviolet. So that the solution only allows the redder end of the spectrum through, making it an orangey-brown color. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. NASA's system checked the amount of light. At a wavelength of 465 nanometers, which is colored blue, for a reference value, the system also monitors the intensity of light passing through the iodized water at 630 nanometers, which is orange red, similar to a helium neon laser color. We mentioned Beer's law a while back, that says the absorption is proportional to the concentration. So there are a series of electronics. To convert the light signal on the detector into a voltage, and compare it to the reference intensity. By the way, for you digital electronics nuts out there, the electronics here are digital. While the grand Apollo missions to the moon were ending in the early 1970s. Other types of space exploration were ramping up. Besides the Skylab space station where astronauts lived, robotic missions were becoming more popular as a lower-cost, lower-risk method of exploring heavenly bodies. One of the most celebrated of the 1970s robots was the Viking lander on Mars, launched in August 1975, and landed on Mars in July 1976. To land the robot on Mars, a large, sturdy parachute was needed to break the landing craft through the tenuous Martian atmosphere, and the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company was the contractor to make the parachute. The parachute was made of a special Dacron polyester, a polyethylene terephthalate, commercialized by Dupont back in the 1950s, 16 meters in diameter. And had a mass of 50 kilograms, but the cords holding the parachute shroud in place were of a special rubber originally developed for a cart used on Apollo 14 in January 1971, informally called a rickshaw with two tires, and designed to haul instruments and tools around on the moon. The tires for this rickshaw were able to stay elastic in extreme cold on the moon. And withstand ultraviolet damage from the sun, so Goodyear used this synthetic rubber as the material for only three straps 
that connected the parachute to the Viking lander, and the cords held 1,040 kilograms of lander mass successfully. After the Viking lander's successful descent, Goodyear began incorporating that rubber into its studless winter tires. Here's a problem in spacecraft you might not have considered. Vapors of various sorts condensing on the windows of the Apollo test flights in the 1960s, fogging them up. One analysis of the problem indicated that silicone oil was outgassing, or vaporizing out of, some elastomers used to build the window assemblies. Fogging of windows or visors also happened during the June 1966 flight of Gemini 9A when Eugene Cernan tested a spacesuit and found that the helmet visor fogged up. A NASA tech brief from May 1971 offered a solution to the problem by providing a formulation for an anti-fogging solution for windows. The tech brief says that, quote, The basic composition of the coating includes a liquid detergent, deionized water, and an oxygen-compatible fire-resistant oil, unquote. Here, deionized water means that all chemical salts are removed, so there are no traces of table salt or any other salts that you might find in tap water or mineral water. Fire-resistant oil, of course, means that the oil won't be a fire hazard in the pressurized compartments used in spacecraft. Specifically, the oil is a silicone oil, with more chemical details listed in the tech brief. Results showed that visors would not fog up for at least five hours. These days, such silicone oil-based anti-fog solutions are used on glasses, lenses for cameras and binoculars, ski goggles, diving masks, or any other optical apparatus. One of the first big disasters of the NASA flights was the fire on the launch pad of Apollo 1 in 1967. During the horrific event, the astronauts wore nylon space suits, which were burned heavily. Therefore, in trying to minimize further accidents, NASA required that no flammable materials be used inside spacecraft or for spacesuits. The answer to how to make a non-flammable textile came from the Manned Spacecraft Center, from Frederick Dawn and his team, who were helped by DuPont and Owen Corning firms. The team came up with what is called beta cloth. It is a woven textile from silica fibers like fiberglass. Silica won't burn and melts only at higher temperatures. Silica fibers aren't especially durable and tear-resistant, so the cloth has the fibers coated with Teflon polymer. Silica itself is silicon dioxide, a very stable mineral. Sand is mostly silica. The cloth's weave is very tight, so it is good against oxygen atoms, which are radicals, that is, having unpaired electrons, and are found in space, particularly in the ionized environment found in low Earth orbit. 
Beta cloth is used often for the outside layer for multi-layer space insulation too. The cloth was used for later Apollo missions, Skylab spacesuits, the shower enclosure in Skylab, the interior of the payload bay on the space shuttle, for long protection while it was open in space, and on the Mars rover Curiosity. Sometimes beta cloth is aluminized, that is, coated with a thin layer of aluminum, like the space blankets, to help reflect heat off of thermally sensitive instruments in space. The final material I want to discuss from NASA deals with the problem of re-entry from space. At high speeds, a spacecraft entering the Earth's atmosphere has friction with the air molecules, and so the spacecraft's outer surface heats up to horrendously and dangerously high temperatures. Though the first two decades of spaceflight used single-use vehicles with heat shields that just burned off, the new space shuttle under design in the mid to late 1970s required a better method. The shuttle was made of aluminum, which needed to stay under 175 degrees Celsius, but re-entry heats up the aluminum beyond its melting point of 660 degrees Celsius. The final method chosen was 15 centimeter by 15 centimeter tiles glued to the space shuttle's surface. The tiles were fabricated from fibers of silica, like fiberglass, which is a great insulator. In truth, there is an intermediate layer between the metal chassis of the space shuttle and the tiles, a felt pad that allows the chassis to bend and flex a bit from launch stress and expansion and contraction from heat and cold. Ultimately, the method used to make these tiles was to densify the tiles at the area near the felt pads. Using a colloidal silica called ludox and a mixture of water and silica, the tiles were baked for two hours at 66 degrees Celsius to remove the water, then waterproofed with methyl trimethoxysilane. What the dense area on the tile did was to create a plate-like area for gluing to the pad. In all these NASA innovations. We see how necessity drove chemists to find unusual solutions for aerospace problems. In all fairness, I want to add that I tried to find a similar list of chemical innovations from the Soviet space program, but was unable to come up with anything. In our next episode, we return to liquid crystals and see what fun things they had in store for the world in the 1960s. And 1970s. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.